0: the book of Romans in chapter 11. Uh, It's now been several months since we were in Romans 10, and certainly several years since we first started in Romans 1, and anytime we step away from the book of Romans and then come back to it, I like to remind us a little bit about this letter as a whole Uh, When we first started our study of the book of Romans, I made an assertion. I suggested that there is no earthly possession that you own that is more valuable than your copy of the book of Romans. Um, I suggested that this letter is more valuable than your car or your house. Uh, It's more valuable than your most expensive piece of jewelry. Uh, when we look at all that we have with a proper perspective, the book of Romans ought to be our most prized material possession. What was my argument for that? My argument for that was this, uh, God ought to be our greatest treasure. God himself ought to be our greatest treasure But more than anywhere else, we get to meet with God and we encounter God and we experience God and we have a relationship with God in His Word, in the Bible. It is through the Bible that we come into relationship with God and that we engage with God, that we hear from God, that we learn about God. The Bible is like a treasure chest that you own. And every page is filled with uh, life-sustaining, joy-giving, faith-strengthening, eternal truth that will do your soul more good than a billion dollars ever could. Uh, It is in the Bible that God Himself most clearly and directly speaks to us. Uh, In the Bible, we can gaze upon our Creator We can gaze upon Jesus, our Savior. It's in the Bible that as we look upon our God in those pages and we marvel, we are conformed into the image of Christ Himself. So I'm arguing, first and foremost, that there's nothing as far as your material possessions that you own that is more precious than your Bible. And then when it comes to the Bible, if there was any one book that we would need to identify as preeminent among the books of the Bible, as special among the books of the Bible, I would suggest it would have to be the book of Romans. Um, If the Bible is a beautiful landscape of God's truth, I've said Romans is the Himalayas. It is the highest peaks of God's Word. All of Scripture is majestic. All of Scripture is wonderful, but Romans is the mountaintops. Why? Why do I say that? I say that because in the book of Romans, we have the gospel and its implications for our lives presented to us more fully, with more depth, with more explanation than in any other book of the Bible. Romans reasons with us. Uh, Romans explains to us. Romans even answers objections, right? Paul is teaching the gospel, and he hears objections coming, and so he he answers them for us. Uh, Romans leads us into moments of worship. Uh, the great eight leads us into worship. And then again at the end of this chapter, Romans 11, Paul was going to break out in worship. You're reading this book and it's teaching you. And if you read the book of Romans in one sitting, you will find that after working through some teaching, suddenly Paul just leads you into awe and wonder at the God that this book is teaching us about. Romans is both theological and practical, It teaches the deepest realities of God found anywhere in the Bible. But it also deals, especially in chapters 12 through 16, with some of the most practical matters of everyday life, like food and drink, for example. Uh, As William Tyndale said, Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. It is a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. So if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, Romans is a helpful lens that once you get Romans, helps you rightly see, understand, and interpret the other 65 books of the Bible. What kind of book is Romans? It is an epistle. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. While he's living in the city of Corinth, which is in Greece, right? And he's ministering to the Christians there in Corinth. The recipients of this letter are the Christians in Rome. They're in the capital city, the capital city of this vast empire that is in power at this time. And yet, though Romans is a letter, it is a very unusual letter. Um, For one thing, it's exceptionally long. Uh, Most letters in the ancient world contained at most a couple hundred words Uh, Even in our own days, when we write a letter, which is falling out of style these days, but if we write a letter to someone, letters tend to be rather short. Um, In the ancient world, there were some men who used letters as an opportunity to put in writing their particular teaching, their particular philosophy. Those men would sometimes write letters of a thousand words or more. Cicero wrote a letter that was 2,500 words long. Seneca wrote wrote one that was 4,100 words long. But those still pale in comparison to the book of Romans. Uh, Paul's letter to this church was more than 7,000 Greek words long. And so that, that exceptionally long length tells us, it at least hints at the fact that Paul was doing something more here than simply writing a letter to this church. When we look a bit more closely, we find that the book of Romans is a thorough presentation of the message that Paul believed and that Paul taught. Some have referred to Romans as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. The the central document that more than any other place in Scripture lays out what we as Christians believe and especially lays out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans is not just a letter, it's a a treatise. Why would Paul send this treatise letter to a church in Rome? Well, first, it seems likely that Paul did this because his desire was that these Christians in Rome would partner with him and support him in his endeavor to take the gospel to Spain. So Paul envisioned a future relationship with this church in which they would play an important role in helping him get the gospel to places north and west of Rome where the gospel had not yet been preached. However, Paul had never visited the church in Rome. He knew some of the people there. We'll see that in, in uh, Romans 16. He did know some of the people who were now at the church in Rome, but the vast majority of the Christians in Rome had never met Paul. He had never met them. They were strangers. Uh, they only knew him by reputation as an apostle. And therefore, it was important that he explained to them who he was and particularly the message that He preached so that the church in Rome could evaluate his message and could conscientiously agree to join with him and to play a supporting role in his missionary endeavors. Second, Paul appears to have given this thorough explanation of the Christian message in order to strengthen and encourage this church in Rome. Paul does not correct the church in Rome in the same way that he does, say, the Corinthians or the Galatians. But there is very little doubt that there was some tension in the church in Rome, especially between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, both groups were believers, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, but there was, there was tension there. And so Paul goes a long way in the book of Romans to address those tensions Moreover, there is nothing more helpful or more needful to Christians than to be reminded of the glories of the gospel. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 11 that he longs to see the Roman Christians so that he might strengthen them. And I think he was praying that this letter would also strengthen them. Uh, Finally, some have suggested that Paul wrote the book of Romans because he had some awareness that the end of his life was probably coming soon. And so Paul desired to put into writing the gospel that he had believed and he had preached before he died. And he wanted to do so in a way more extensive than, say, we have in the letter to the Ephesians or uh, the letter to the Colossians. Uh, The letters of the apostles were commonly copied and passed around among the early churches. They were often read during the church's worship services. And so therefore, while Paul was writing this particular letter to the church in Rome, he was probably very well aware that this letter would then be copied and passed on to other churches all over uh, Asia Minor and Europe, and that those churches would benefit from this letter to the Romans. Uh, He served the whole church of Christ by giving us in one place the message of the gospel, uh, the core of Christianity. And it's interesting that when we look at the uh, epistles of Peter, and Peter is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, he makes a reference, and we just saw this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. He makes a reference to the book of Romans, and he seems to assume that these Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor are all familiar with the book of Romans. He even says, "I know Paul gets hard in some places, right?" <laughs> so he, you know, it's very clear that, you know, that he was ev- that this was evident to them. And so this was a letter that was passed around among many churches, not just the church in Rome. Um, Rome was certainly on Paul's mind as he wrote, but I don't think Rome was the only church on Paul's mind as he wrote this letter. Amazingly, we can also say with absolute confidence that it was God's intention that Paul write this letter for us today. It was for the Christians of the first century. It is just as much for the Christians of the 21st century. Uh, This letter was written for us, for your benefit and for for my benefit. Uh, It was God who ordained for this letter to be put in the English translation that we now have in our hands. And so we should not take that for granted. Do not take your English Bible, do not take your English copy of the book of Romans for granted. We ought to be grateful. Now, before we come to Romans 11, uh, we have to figure out what's, what's come before. We have to set ourselves up. And so somehow, in like five minutes, I have to cover Romans 1 through 10 to remind you of what we've seen. And you guys know this is hard for me. Uh, Romans 1 through 10, we've preached hundreds of sermons on Romans 1 through 10. So summarizing is difficult. But here is a very brief summary. In fact, go ahead and turn to Romans 1. And then just walk with me, and we'll walk through Romans 1 through 10, and that'll set us up, help us be in place for Romans 11. We're going to try and breeze through this. So Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 15 contain Paul greeting the the Christians in Rome. Uh, There are some preliminary words. He's expressing his love for them. He's expressing his desire to see them. And then in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, we find the thesis statement of the whole letter. Uh, We learn in verses 16 and 17 what it is that Paul was going to be writing about in this letter. The subject matter of the book of Romans is the gospel, the good news. the, The gospel that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and also the Gentile. So then... After he's established that this letter is going to be about the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel, he begins to unpack. What is the gospel? What is this good news? And Paul begins his teaching of the good news with the bad news. (laughs) He starts with the bad news to bring us to the good news. Uh, He begins with sin. So he takes up the subject of the gospel and he starts by teaching human depravity. Why does he start there? Because until we understand the depths of our sin, we will never understand the glories of Christ. Uh, Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so he doesn't go straight to Jesus. He goes first to man's sin. So in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, right, the rest of chapter 1, Paul teaches that all humanity is desperately wicked, and under God's righteous wrath. Then in Romans chapter 2, going all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, he explains that even those who are Jews are under God's condemnation and in need of salvation. Uh, the Jews might have been thinking, yep, those Gentiles, they're terrible. Those Gentiles, they're under the wrath of God. They need to be saved. And so what Paul does in Romans 2 is he says, wait a minute, Jews, you also are included in this. All humanity is sinful and in need of salvation. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he continues to to unpack that. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, chapter 3, 9 through 20, Paul just drives the point home about all humanity being sinful by providing from the old testament text after text after text after text just quote after quote after quote showing that each and every member of the human race is sinful at the core and deserving of god's just anger um our culture views humanity as basically good romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is the most comprehensive statement in the Bible about the true condition of man, about who we are and why we need a Savior. Uh, Nowhere else in Scripture will you see a more full explanation of the wickedness, the darkness, the blackness of the human heart than in these verses. And then... After after all of these verses about how awful humanity is and how badly we need to be saved because God's judgment is upon us, Paul has prepared us to hear the good news, the great news of salvation in Jesus Christ, and that's what the whole rest of the letter is going to be about. Um, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, really verse 21 to the end of the chapter, that's what I call the Mount Everest of the Bible right romans is the Him- himalayas uh, and then the highest mountaintop of all, I think, is Romans 3, 21 to 31, where Paul, after all of this darkness of humanity, says, here is the way of salvation. Um, Romans three twenty-three: for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so he just goes into detail and explains the good news of how Jesus has saved us if we believe by his death on the cross. He explains that Jesus' death satisfied the requirements of God's justice. God's justice demanded that the wicked be punished The sins of God's people were paid for by Christ on the cross. He bore the punishment we deserved so that now God can forgive our sins and he can be just in doing so. And then in Romans 4, the emphasis is faith alone. How do we receive this salvation? How does Christ's cross work come and apply to us? It is by faith alone. Uh, He uses Abraham, he uses David, he uses Old Testament quotations to show again and again. This isn't a new message. It's always been by faith alone that we are counted as righteous in the sight of God. Glorious chapters. Then you get to Romans 5. Romans 5. Romans 5 through 8 are all about how glorious this salvation is. So yes, Paul spent a lot of time on the negative. Romans 1 verse 18 through Romans 3 verse 20, he spent a lot of time on the negative. He spends twice as much time on how glorious the salvation is that Jesus Christ brings, chapter 5 through 8. Uh, In Romans 5, 1 through 11, we're told that this wondrous salvation gives us peace with God that it's accompanied by many other blessings like joy and hope. In chapter 5, verse 12, all the way through chapter 6, verse 23, Paul explains that this great salvation in Jesus radically changes our identity. Uh, when we believe on Jesus, we're no longer a people of sin and death, but a people of righteousness and life. We're no longer in Adam. We're now in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. No, we are now slaves to righteousness. We are now a new people, and we're being called as followers of Christ to live in the newness that he has given to us, to embrace new life. In Romans 7, verses 1 through 25, we discover that this salvation through Jesus means that we have freedom from trying to earn God's favor through law-keeping. Paul says the law is a good thing. The law serves a good purpose. But we are no longer in bondage to the law. It is no longer um, to be looked at as a ladder to climb, to get to heaven. It never should have been looked at that way. But here we are in the blood of Jesus, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Uh, Because of Christ, we don't try and merit our salvation through good works. We rely on what he has done and what he has done alone. And all of this glory, all of this the glorious salvation that Jesus has given is built up for the great age. Right? We spent a long time in the great age just soaking up the glories of that chapter. Uh, In Romans 8, 1 through 17, we find that our salvation in Jesus includes victory over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 18 through 39 of chapter 8, we're told that this salvation grants us eternal security in Christ so that nothing can separate us from the love of God that we've received in Jesus. Uh, anytime there is a, a Christian who is discouraged and they say, what is a passage I can read to comfort me? I know of no better place in the Bible to rejoice in Jesus Christ than the great eight. I think Romans 8 is just <laughs> fantastic. And then we come to Romans 9 through 11. Romans 9 through 11 is Paul showing that this glorious salvation that he's been talking about for four and a half chapters is, is even more glorious than you might think. Because it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. Indeed, it's for all who will believe. And in Romans 9, 1-29, Paul defends God's faithfulness and teaches that God saves all whom he chooses, calling to himself some who are Jews and calling to himself some who are Gentiles. Not everyone who is a part of national Israel is a part of true Israel. The true Israel, Paul says, is the elect of God. All who share Abraham's faith, those who believe on God, whether they are Jew or Gentile, get to share in those blessings. That's good news for us in this room because we're Gentiles, right? Aren't we glad that this has been extended to the Gentiles and that we get to be true Israel, true Jews in the sight of God? In Romans 9-11, through Paul argues that the rejection of Jesus... By the majority of the Jews in his day, was a part of God's plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, so that ultimately all of God's people would be saved, all to His glory. And so we just finished some months ago Romans ten, right, with this wonderful gospel call to the nations. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For with the let's see. Um, Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this call for missions, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so it's all about the Gentiles being reached with the gospel. And with all of that in mind, we come to Romans 11. And with the rest of our time tonight, we're going to look at the first six verses Romans 11, 1 through 6. So let's look at these verses together. This is the very word of God. Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So as we look at these verses, we see that Paul begins with a question. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So this comes from what Paul has just been teaching in chapter 10. The gospel is going to the Gentiles. People are being saved from all the nations. Uh, Look at the verse that Paul quotes from Isaiah in Romans 10, verse 20. So Romans 10, verse 20, Paul is quoting from Isaiah. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. These are the Gentiles. These are the pagan peoples of the world from all over the ancient world. And suddenly, in the first century, they're finding God. People, Think about the day of Pentecost. There were people in Jerusalem from all of these other nations on the day of Pentecost. And in that one sermon by Peter, suddenly people were being saved from all kinds of nations all in one day. These people were not looking for God. And yet God found them and he saved them. But what about the Jews? Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. Verse 21 of chapter 10. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the Jews, by and large, were rejecting Jesus. While the rest of the Gentile world was beginning to find God through Jesus Christ, Israel was not. God was not showing himself savingly to the Jews. And so the question that Paul is bringing up is simply this. Has God rejected his ancient people? Has he rejected his covenant people, the Jews? And you see Paul's answer. Paul's answer is, by no means. Absolutely not. And from there, throughout these next few verses, he gives us two key evidences that God has not rejected ethnic Jews, that God has not rejected ethnic Israel completely. The sum of his argument is verse 5. So if you want to see what the sum of his argument is, it is verse 5. Here it is, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul's argument in these verses is that God has not failed to keep his promises to Abraham. God has not failed to keep his promises to Isaac. God has not failed to keep his promises to Jacob because he has indeed included some of their physical blood descendants as part of his true and spiritual people. It may look like the Jews are totally and completely shut out of God's people. Because so few of them are believing. But Paul says, don't discount those few. He says, God always has a remnant. And within ethnic Israel, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, even in today, in our day, in the 21st century, there's always been a remnant of ethnic Jews who believe and who are saved. Okay, Paul, prove it. Prove to us that there are still ethnic Jews who are believing and that they're not completely shut off from God's kingdom. Well, evidence number one, Paul presents himself, (laughs) right? Paul says, I am exhibit A. I am a Jew. Paul was a Christian Jew. Paul was a believing Jew, a saved Jew. This is a passage where Paul stresses his ethnicity, he is an Israelite he is a descendant of Abraham he is a member of the tribe of Benjamin here is the first piece of evidence that God is indeed saving some out of ethnic Israel the apostle Paul is that first evidence and then he says this he says God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew you see that In other words, here is how we make sense of the fact that while uh, Israel as a whole is rejecting Jesus, a few are being saved. God has not rejected those whom he foreknew. The original question in verse 1 God has not rejected his people, has he? Answer, no, he's not rejected his people. But his people are not national Israel. His people include ethnic Israelites that he foreknew. There are some with an ethnic Israel whom God foreknew. They are truly God's people and they have not been and never will be rejected. They are truly God's. And we know that Paul is talking about some within Israel, and not the whole nation, because the example he gives next is of a remnant, a remnant. Now that word for new." that word for new" should take you all the way back to Romans eight, right? Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We saw there that this word foreknew means loved, right? Know in the Bible means a lot more than intellectual knowledge a good part of the time. Adam knew Eve and she gave birth to a son. This word know in the Bible has this idea of love, this idea of intimacy. When God foreknows someone, it means he sets his love on them ahead of time. And all those whom God has set his love on ahead of time, he has predestined to become like Jesus, Romans 8 says. To make that happen, he calls them. He justifies them, He glorifies them, He brings them into glory itself. It is the foreknown people of God who are His chosen ones, His children, His true people. And there was never a time, never, in the history of ethnic Israel when there were not at least some living who were the foreknown of God. Perhaps in the days of the judges, they were just a you know a few. They were just a few in the days of the judges, who were the foreknown of God, the believing, those who were saved. In the time of Elijah, as we will see, they seemed really scarce. Elijah's looking around, going, "Am I the only one? God, am I the only Israelite that believes on you? That's really yours." In Paul's day, the number of Jewish believers seemed tiny, but Paul says. There's always a remnant. Always a remnant. And then Paul gives this illustration from the Old Testament. Put yourself in Elijah's shoes or Elijah's sandals. Okay. Uh, This is 1 Kings 19. Elijah is in a cave. Elijah is in a cave, and he says to God, he's praying. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And then Elijah says this to God. He says, And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. This is a moment in Elijah's life where he feels so lonely. He says, God, the people of Israel whom you established a covenant with at Mount Sinai, they've broken that covenant. They've taken the altars where they used to worship you. They've thrown away those altars or they've uh, repurposed them to worship Baal through them. You've sent them prophets. They've killed the prophets. And here I am. I'm, I'm the last one, God. I'm the last one seeking to be faithful to you. And he says, I'm seeking to honor you even at great peril to myself. My own life is in danger. They're coming after me now, God. Everyone else has turned against you. Do You ever feel that way? You ever think, you know, am I the only Christian going through this situation or in this circumstance? Maybe you are the only Christian in your workplace. Now, right? uh, as you seek to honor God in your work, you look around and you feel very alone in your workplace. Your coworkers don't see things the way you do, they, they don't work from the same principles that you do. Or consider being the only Christian in your family. Many Christians experience that. They're the only Christian in their family. And here they are striving to trust and obey God, but their their spouse or their parents or their siblings are just living very differently. And, And that Christian can feel very isolated in their faith. Their family members make it so hard for them. I think young single Christians sometimes feel this way. Other singles are out at clubs or similar places participating in a very worldly dating scene. And and as a Christian young single, they know that that isn't wise. Um, Here you are trying to honor God in your singleness, praying that God will provide a godly spouse. But sometimes you feel like, am I the only one in this situation? What does God tell Elijah? God tells Elijah, I have kept for myself. 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says to Elijah, Elijah, your assessment of the situation is wrong. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. There are others like you who are seeking to remain faithful to me. There are others like you seeking to honor me. Uh, Believers in this room, you are not alone in seeking to honor God. You may be the only Christian in your workplace, but there are a thousand more like you around the world who are the only light in their workplace. And they're trying to honor Christ in their workplace, just as you are in yours. You may be the only Christian in your family, but there are a thousand more Christians who are also the only Christians in their family. You're not alone in that circumstance. And they're seeking to be a gospel witness in their home, just like you're seeking to be a gospel witness in yours. You may be the only Christian single you know who refuses to go to clubs or participate in such things. But there are a thousand more like you, making the same bold choice. God has a remnant. He is a a people that he is keeping faithful to himself. And so if we ever feel like we're solitary, know that we're not. We're not at all. Notice the words of God carefully here. God says, I have kept for myself. This is how Paul understands God's message to Elijah. The whole northern kingdom of Israel was running after Baal as hard as they could. When Ahab is your king, when Jezebel is your queen, the pressure to embrace the pagan gods is strong. You want to keep your neck, don't you? And yet it was God who kept 7,000 people for himself. It was God who gave these 7,000 people faith in him, and when everybody else around them was wandering into paganism and chasing after Baal and obeying these ungodly authorities, God kept these 7,000 from going in that direction. It was grace that kept them. And in the same way, if we are here tonight as believers, if we are here tonight being kept... Then all the glory goes to God. God is keeping us for Himself. He keeps us even now, sustaining our faith, protecting us from those that would steal our hearts away. You and I are part of a remnant, aren't we? Verses 5 and 6. So, verse verse 5 is the point of the whole section, right? Paul looks at ethnic national Israel. He recognizes that God has graciously chosen for himself a remnant of Jews who are believing on the Lord Jesus and are being saved. But in verses 5 and 6, he comes back to a crucial point he has been emphasizing again and again and again in the book of Romans. Namely, salvation is all of grace. I didn't expect it to rain. Salvation is all of grace. Why is that important? That's important because this is precisely the point where the Jews were stumbling, isn't it? This is why so many Jews remained unconverted. Rather than accepting the gracious gift of the righteousness of Jesus imputed to them by faith, the Jews wanted to establish their own righteousness before God through their own works. They stumbled over grace. They couldn't get over the fact that it was by grace. They wanted to merit it. They wanted to earn it. We know that righteousness is the issue. Because that has been well established in this letter over and over again. How can I be right before God? Has been the crucial question of the whole letter. The correct answer is, I can only be right with God by trusting in Jesus. His blood takes my sins away. His perfect righteousness is accounted to me the moment I believe. He takes the F's off my report card, places his A's there in the sight of God. That's the correct answer. It is by grace. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Jews wanted to try and earn the A's on their own. They didn't like grace. They want to earn it. Look back real quickly at Romans 9, 31 and 32. Romans 9, 31 and 32. Paul says, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Isn't that clear? Here's what Israel stumbled over. They took the law of God, and rather than seeing that law as a law for faith, to trust in God, a, lo- a law that points them to their own depravity and need for God, Israel took the law and said, works merit salvation by my own works. Look at Romans 10, 3 and 4. Romans 10, 3 and 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is, ignorant of the righteousness that God provides, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was not given as a means to earn salvation. The law was given to promote faith. The law was given to lead us to faith. The law was given to be followed in faith. The law was always pointing to Christ, his character and his work. And then when Christ came, to whom the law had been pointing through centuries of Jewish history, the Jews stumbled over Christ. And so Paul is emphasizing yet again, salvation is not of works. And he drives the point home at the end of verse 6 by saying that if salvation was based on works, it could not be based on grace. Um, he has just spoken of election in verse 5 that God graciously chooses those whom he will save. God's sovereign choice is is not based on him looking into the future and seeing who's going to merit his salvation. God looks into the future and says, Oh, Billy's been really kind lately. I choose him. Uh, Sally, mm, she's been mean. I'm not choosing her. It's not based on works. It's not how election works. Rather, as Paul said in chapter 9, God chooses his people before they are born, before they do anything good or bad. And not on the basis of works, but on the basis of His purpose. This is why we believe in what's called unconditional election. If I am saved and someone else is not, I cannot boast one iota. If I am saved and someone else is not, it is all owing to the mysterious and sovereign grace of God. And works are opposed to grace. As soon as I start bringing my works into the picture to try and earn favor from God, grace ceases to be grace. So Mount Herman, think about your life right now. Is it possible that you're still trying to live as if you have to earn God's favor? Is it possible that you're still trying to live as if you have to please Him by your works to keep his favor? If that is how you are living, you are living with a graceless salvation. True salvation rests on grace and grace alone. We come to God just as we are. We don't clean ourselves up first, right? Um, we were talking, Chris, yesterday about uh, going to the doctor. Um, I turned 36 in January, and I started thinking, you know what? You know, there comes a point in your life where you should probably go just get a checkup. Just see if everything's okay. I said, I don't want to go now. I want to lose some weight first. Right? I want to, I want to get a little healthier. And then when, when I've gotten a little healthier, then I'll go to the doctor. Sometimes people do that with salvation, don't they? Well, Let me, let me get this fixed first. Let me, let me clean this up first. And then, and then when I'm ready, then I'll go to God. But that's not how salvation works. Christ calls us to come as we are. We come knowing that we're messed up sinners, but believing that the grace of God in Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to redeem us, to cleanse us, and to reconcile us to God. And that's how the the life of Christianity begins, and then the whole Christian life is lived in grace. I don't wake up tomorrow thinking, does God love me today? Well, how did I do yesterday? No, I know that my experience of the love of God is based on the perfection of Jesus Christ that never changes. God's favor towards me does not go up or down with my performance, right? God's favor towards me is built on, established on Jesus Christ who never changes yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Our whole Christian lives are lived standing in grace. So I close this way. Are you thankful for grace? (laughs) Are you grateful for grace? Eternity is a really long time. Hell is truly horrendous. And heaven is truly glorious. If we had to carry the burden of earning our way out of hell and into heaven, that burden would bury us but Christ has taken that burden upon His own shoulders. Christ has secured our escape from hell. Christ has secured our entrance into heaven. And He has done so with a heart of love and with a strong right hand and with a tender commitment to our well-being. Mount Hermon, let us love the grace of Christ and let us love our Lord Jesus Christ who has done so much for us. And since God has been so gracious towards us, let us be gracious towards others. Amen? Amen.